you got your copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to turn once again to 1 Peter. We are continuing our expository series through the first epistle of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking at today, verses 4 through 10. And so if you are able to, I want to invite you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We read, beginning in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for this night. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to fellowship and to gather um, for the purpose of worshiping you, dear God, worshiping you through our song, worshiping you through our, our speech and our conduct, but most of all, worshiping you through your word. Father God, I, I just pray that you would uh, that, that your word would be honored tonight. I pray that the truth uh, of Scripture that, that you have inspired for us would be, would be made known. Father, that the Spirit would illuminate this truth, that the Spirit would apply this truth to my heart, to the hearts of those who listen to me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, one of the most perplexing realities to consider is how differently different people respond to the message of the gospel. We read in scripture that the word of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so therein we see that that which is foolishness to some is divine, supernatural power to others. And God is pleased to work in this way. Now, in our passage tonight, as Al is so excited to hear, we are going to be discussing our, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will see the, the stark reality that, to some, He is indeed a stone of stumbling, a stone or a rock of offense. But to others, he is the very foundation of salvation and spiritual life. That to those whom he saves, he gives the ability to come to him personally, to live life no longer for themselves, but to live for him. And so now the, the subject matter of this passage is undoubtedly grand. It, it's, it's weighty. It's deep. But I pray that the Spirit of God would take this this mind-bending, earth-shattering truth and would make it plain to us. Now, we, we've been going through this book here for a few weeks now, and, and when you look at the flow of, of 1 Peter, you see that we are in the transitional stage between uh, where Peter is moving from doctrine to application. Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, has spoken of marvelously wonderful truths of God and how God has acted to redeem his people. And he is moving forward then to tell us how we ought to live in spite of it, 
How, how, how should the truth of God affect our hearts, influence our minds, influence the way we live our lives? If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, you read that Peter in his epistle is writing to those whom he refers to as the elect exiles. Now, now we have talked about how Christians are a peculiar people, a people, a, a unique people, called by God and set apart from the world. The Christian is on in exile, it is on a pilgrimage in this life because this world is not his home. He is he's just traveling through until he takes his final rest in the presence of his Savior whom he loves. Now, now Peter picks up on this very same theme again in, in chapter 1, verse 17, saying to, quote, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Those Christians, the peculiar people whom God has called out of darkness and the, and, and the deadness of this perishing world uh, and into the light ought to live their lives with, with a holy reverence unto the Lord their God as they, by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, have been ransomed from the futile ways of sin. Now getting to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What he's saying in those verses is to, as Brother John pointed out last Sunday night, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and, and slander, and, and instead long for pure, unadulterated, pristine spiritual truth. And then in verse 3, Peter makes a statement, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I'm not going to uh, stay here all, all night, but what is so important to recognize is that the word Lord being used there comes from the Greek kyrios, which is the, the name of God in the Old Testament translated uh, as we find it in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then in verse 4, we realize the one being referred to as Kyrios, the one being referred to as Lord, is Jesus Christ. And, and, and I need to point this out because right there in this section is, is one of the many places where Jesus is identified as God and, and the deity of Christ is, is a critical doctrine to the Christian faith. Uh, if you deny that Jesus Christ is God, you are no longer within Christian orthodoxy. You are outside of the sandbox, as some would say, you, you, you simply cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus Christ is the Lord God. And so with that in mind, recognizing that we are talking about the second person of the Trinity, the, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, in, in this passage we are going to be examining tonight, we are going to see some of the wonderful gifts that Christ has given to his people as, as well as, at the very same time, how divisive he can be to others. Now, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate this truth for us, that it would be made clear to all of us through the preaching of the Word of God, and that this truth would be impressed upon our hearts, and that in light of this truth, we would all live anew for the glory of God. And, and so in verse 4 we read in chapter 2, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. As I have just indicated, the him here at the beginning of verse 4 is referring to Jesus, is referring to God the Son. And what Peter writes to his audience of Christians is, as you come to him. This could also be understood as drawing near to God. The, the book of Hebrews uses the same terminology in a number of places to say things like, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, what is being communicated here is personal, intimate communion and fellowship between believers and God, which is found through Jesus Christ. Because one of the blessings of salvation is not merely that our sins are forgiven and we are spared from the wrath of God, although those are in no way small things, but that when the grace of God powerfully draws us to himself and inflames within us a love for him, 
We are given the most wonderful gift of intimate, abiding, personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself talks about abiding in him, abiding in his word, abiding in his love. The phrase here in 1 Peter, as you come to him, suggests that this is an ongoing, continual relationship. And we need to recognize that we need to really just just get excited about that. We we need to let that fill us with joy and, and awestruck wonder that the one through whom all things were created has so desired to call us into personal, intimate fellowship with him. This, this, this is a most lovely doctrine that, that ought to give every Christian hope and joy when, when they are feeling lonely, when, when they feel rejected by this world, that they have a friend in Jesus. And, and I mean that sincerely. As J.C. Ryle has said, the friend of sinners is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But not only do we, you and I, at times in our lives, feel rejected by the world, so too was our great friend and Lord literally rejected by the world. Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, now I need to kind of just pump the brakes here and stop it and point out that this stone imagery that we find in this passage, Jesus is being referred to as a living stone, is used throughout the passage with a, a variety of Old Testament quotations. And we will discuss those more in depth as we go through this passage, but just make a note here that, that stones are things that generally speaking, do not live. Now, they're not dead, but, but they are indeed lifeless. They are, they are inanimate objects. And yet, here, Christ is called a living stone. This living stone has been rejected by men. And here is where we're, we see one of the great points of this passage, the response that Jesus elicits from the unregenerate. The man who is in the flesh does not embrace Christ as he ought to. He rejects him. Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, was was really not always a well-liked man. He spoke the truth. He confronted sin. He confronted hypocrisy. Therefore, he was hated, and to this day is hated by many. Jesus lived much of his life here on earth being hounded by people who were seeking to literally take his life, to to literally kill him. And eventually, when the time came, the Son of Man was delivered up unto death, crucified on a criminal's cross, no less, a, a humiliating way to die in the ancient world, because he was despised by men. But in the sight of God, it says that he was chosen and precious. The, the, the love that exists between Father, the Father and the Son, between all the persons of the Trinity, is a love that exceeds and transcends any other kind of love that, that you or I could imagine. A bond more intimate than we can literally experience in this life. And so here we make the inference that which is most hated by the world is sometimes the most loved by God. And, and this fits in the overarching theme here in First Peter very well. The believers who are the elect exiles, that they, are, they are hated, they are mocked, they are persecuted by men all their lives, yet they are the ones chosen by God to draw near to Him in personal, intimate fellowship and, and communion. Therefore, my my dear Christian brother or sister, embrace the fact that God has set you apart to be different, to not be of this world. It it does not matter whom you displease if you please God. We need to to hear that. We we really need to hear that, especially in 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 the wicked culture we live today. We, who are Christians... You, if you are a Christian, the elect exiles are often mocked by the world. 
at the same time, are given access to have fellowship with the Lord God, Jesus Christ himself, who himself was mocked and hated by this world. And this, this is a most lovely and precious thing. We read in verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so look at the amazing thing here at the beginning of verse 5. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The, the living stone imagery has been applied to Jesus. It is now being applied to believers. Now this, obviously, in no way, shape, or form is elevating believers to, to the glory of Jesus or the status of Jesus or anything like that. He is kyrios. He is Lord. We are not. But, but there really, there still is significance here. And, and I'll explain the difference between how Christ is a living stone and how we are living stones. But for now, look at what is being said here in verse 5. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now the word house there in the original language is, is often used when talking about the temple in Jerusalem. The, the temple, think in the Old Testament, being the main place of worship where Sacrifices to God were offered under the Old Covenant, but with Christ comes in the New Covenant, and now what is being told to us here in 1 Peter is that we, believers, are like living stones being built up into God's new temple. Only this time, instead of being constructed with literal stones, now this is being constructed with living stones. This, this is a, a spiritual temple built up with Christians. Living stones, and, and as Christ is the living stone, we who are the multitude of living stones are being conformed into his image every single day. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on in this verse to say, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so you might be wondering, well, what on earth is going on here? You know, thinking about the Old Testament for a minute, which, yes, despite what many popular Christian leaders would want you to think, the Old Testament is still Scripture, it is still relevant to us today. Now, let us never forget that. Thinking about the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelt, where God tabernacled. Right? It is why it is referred to as the house of God. But what we read in the New Testament under the New Covenant is now God dwells in his people. Peter here says that believers are being built up as a spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And so in addition to the temple being the dwelling place of God, the temple was also the chief place where sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were offered up to God. But whereas under the Old Covenant, these animal sacrifices, which were a shadow of things to come, were made continually, we see that Jesus Christ has died once and for all to be the atonement for our sins, and so the priests, under the New Covenant, do not offer animal sacrifices, but rather offer up spiritual sacrifices. But before I can really explain what that means, I must first answer the question, well, who are the priests under the New Covenant? This is where the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers comes into view. For verse 5 not only says that believers are the temple, but also that believers themselves are the priests. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The same people referred to as the living stones are referred to as the priesthood. And priesthood, multitude, uh, that, 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 is, that is a plural word. We're talking about a multitude of people. And so whereas under the Old Covenant, the people of God needed a priest 
to go between them and God, offering up sacrifices. Now, the testimony of the Scripture is that every single believer, every single Christian themselves, has the gift of being able to draw near to God, to come to Him, as verse 4 says, to commune with Him, to have fellowship with Him, and to worship Him. For verse 5 says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the question that would naturally come up then is, well, what, what are these spiritual sacrifices? The New Testament elsewhere identifies these spiritual sacrifices as offering our bodies to service for God, giving to help spread the work of the gospel, sharing our possessions, doing good things, doing charitable things, sharing the message of the glorious gospel itself with the lost world. But lastly, what perhaps might be most important to our context here is offering up praise to the Lord our God. Now, now every single Christian really needs to reflect on this ever most forgotten doctrine. Dear Christian, you are a priest in the sense that you, yourself, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, you have been granted by God the ability to freely, without needing any mediator, no one between you, to come to God, to draw near to Him, to draw near to the throne of grace, to offer Him your love, your praise, and your worship. That you, yourself, you, you don't need, need a preacher to come between you and God. You don't need the church to come between you and God. This We're talking about something personal between you and the majesty on high. You, yourself, can draw near to the throne of grace. You can actually get, get down on your knees in prayer and be in the very presence of the God of Abraham to be in the presence of the one who created all things. Roman Catholicism teaches that only a special, select group of Christians are priests and that you can't pray directly to God, that you have to go through them, go through their system, or pray to Mary and the saints and all these different things. That's not what my Bible teaches. There is no special class or special group of Christians that are more dear to God than others. There are men who have been called by God to be missionaries, men who have been called by God to be preachers and, and to be this and, and to be that. Yet every single Christian, from the weakest and lowliest saint to the most powerful preacher, are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. So the next time we, during the service, partake of the Lord's Supper, what you will notice is that we will all be partaking of the same elements from the same table. Why is that? That's because there is no higher class Christian. We don't have, have our wealthy congregants meet here and, and the poor meet up over here. No, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And so every Christian is nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, and every sinner saved by grace under the new covenant has been made a priest so that they for themselves might have an intimate and personal relationship with God to offer Him praise, to serve Him, to worship Him. But we mustn't only understand that in the individual sense. For what does Peter say in verse 5? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Plural. You see, the church... The people of God collectively, in a spiritual sense, are made one holy temple of God. And just as when the Christian by himself in the closet gets down on his knees and he, and he draws near to the very throne of grace, when Christians, the holy priesthood, gathers together to worship the Lord, to sing praises to Him, to hear His word preached, just as we are doing tonight at this very moment, when, when this happens, right now at this very moment, we have entered into the presence of the living God, if indeed we worship Him in spirit and truth. It, it goes without saying that this, this should impact and affect the way that you, 
that you view what it is we do here, the way that you view corporate worship. This should influence how you think about what the church does when we gather. That we are not here to entertain ourselves. We, we are not here to please ourselves. We are not here to have our desires satisfied. No. We are here to enter into the presence of the holy, the thrice holy and living God, to worship Him, to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him, to love Him, to commune with Him, to fellowship with Him. Believer, you are of a holy priesthood. For God's Spirit dwells in you. And you yourself are called daily to offer up pleasing and spiritual sacrifices to Him. Do not neglect this. Do, do not forsake this special thing. This, this is such a lovely and most wonderful doctrine that we read in our Bibles. And it is with great pleasure tonight that I, that I bring it to you from these words of Holy Scripture that the Spirit has given us. But to understand... And to appreciate these words that I'm saying properly, we must first recognize the foundation upon which it all rests. And so we are going to continue to traverse through these verses, and as we do, I pray that, that we, the people of God, remember and, and recognize that what we are doing right now as we open up our Bibles, as we go through His Word together, we've entered into the very presence of God and so as we go through these verses, this ought to be, for you, an experience of worship. This ought to be an experience of reverence as we reflect over the truth of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 6 we read, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice how Peter begins his argument here in verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture. Now everything that Peter has just said, he is going to demonstrate the truth of it, the truth of those claims, with various Old Testament quotations. Now for the apostle here, there does not need to be any higher authority than the Word of God itself. In, in his mind, if Scripture says it, the issue does not need to be debated any further. For when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Now Peter here, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, if you've been, been paying attention, you are immediately going to recognize the imagery of the stone, which was already applied to Jesus in verse 4. Peter here quotes this verse in Greek, he quotes the Septuagint, but the Hebrew text reads, if you physically flip your Bible to Isaiah, the version you'll see is, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You see, the focus here is that the stone which the Lord has laid, the, the cornerstone, is the foundation stone. This is the stone upon which everything else is built. And if you remove the stone, the building will collapse, will come tumbling down along with everything in it. Now, in the original context of the book of Isaiah, God is pronouncing judgment upon the leaders of Israel for their wickedness, for their sin, for their debauchery. God says that he is going to reject them, them personally, and instead lay as a foundation in Zion a precious cornerstone, and that whoever believes will not be in haste, which means they will not be overcome with sudden fear in the Hebrew, or in Peter's Greek quotation, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so as we reflect on, upon what has been said in verse 4, that Jesus Christ the living stone was rejected by men, that believers in him are the elect exiles in this world, we recognize the staggering reality that the world is at enmity with God and with his people. And so as we, in our lives, 
face this mockery, face this persecution, which just by the way, where we live, we have it, have it so good. We have it so lucky. I read of a man in, in the Middle East in the, in the Sahara Desert who was killed for being baptized in a tarp. Now, now behind me, you know, we have um, a baptismal pool that, that is, you know, under shelter. We have a nice roof here. We have members that come here that, that, are, that are free to worship every Sunday. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we can just take this, this so for granted, recognizing that we have brothers who would give their lives to have just, just a portion of, of what we experience. And, um, and, you know, as the one preacher said, hey, when I'm pointing at my finger at you, I got three more pointing back at me. That's, that's, that's for all of us to reflect upon. And so, uh, you know, we live our lives, we, we face this mockery, we face this persecution, but here God promises that whoever believes in and puts their trust in Jesus Christ, who is the firm foundation of God's kingdom, they will not be put to shame. In the final judgment, that is, they will be vindicated. They will have been justified in God's sight. For it is to those who reject God's statutes and blaspheme His name that judgment will come. Verse 7 says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We are seeing a contrast here between those who believe and those who do not believe. Peter, at the beginning of verse 7, ascribes honor to those of us who believe. And now Peter has just said in verse 6 that believers will not be put to shame. So as opposed to shame, those who believe in and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundational cornerstone, the precious stone which God has laid in Zion, they will receive honor. Now, in the context of the passage, what we are reading, you know, what I alluded to earlier, that they will, they will be justified in God's sight. They will be seen before God as having had the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and their sins will be forgiven. Now, there is a great comfort for those of us who trust in the Lord, for we know that no matter what life throws of us, even to the men this day who are being killed for their faith, that no matter what, no matter what persecutions and mockery or whatever it is that we face comes our way, we know that we are justified by means of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the case for everyone. See, this, this is a reality that, that applies to believers. This is not the case for non-believers. For as Peter quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, th now this, this is powerful imagery that is used here in the psalm Peter quotes from. As a matter of fact, Jesus applies the very same quotation to himself in, in all three synoptic gospels uh, when dealing with the Jewish rejection of him. Peter himself, the author of our epistle here, quotes this verse in Acts chapter 4. Uh, there, there's an incident where after the Jewish people had had crucified Jesus, the, the very Messiah who was promised to their forefathers in the Old Testament scriptures. And, and at one point, Peter was used by God to heal a lame beggar, allowing him to walk again. Well, quite obviously, the people that bear witness to this miracle, the Jewish people, are astonished, wondering how it is that this could have happened. And listen to what we read in Acts chapter 4. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the stone who was not only rejected, but crucified by the builders, delivered up to death by his enemies. But though Jesus was rejected, was mocked, was tortured, was abused, and slain by those who who hated him, who did not believe in him, God raised him from the dead. And not only was Christ raised from the dead, his is the name, that that, that is an, an exclusive statement, his is the name, definite article, the only name by which salvation is found. Jesus is the bedrock, the foundation, the cornerstone of salvation. His is the name upon which it all rests. And to them who abide in his name, who come to him by faith, to them is the honor. For believers in Christ are justified and are saved by means of their faith. But to them who reject him, they do not yet realize And what will one day be revealed to them is the stone that they rejected has become the chief cornerstone. By rejecting Him, they have rejected the very foundation of salvation. And to them will be the judgment. Because not only is Christ the cornerstone of salvation to them that are being saved, listen to what we read in verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Now, Peter, in the first part of this verse, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, and I'm actually going to read to you just a bit more of the context from there. So in Isaiah 8, we read, And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You see, the the astonishing claim that Peter is making here is that the same stone, which is the foundation of salvation to those who believe in him, what Isaiah calls a sanctuary, is also the means of stumbling or offense to those who reject him. The same heat which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same name which is life to some is judgment to others. That which is foolishness to them that are perishing, the word of the cross, to them who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Isaiah declared, many shall stumble on it. Referring to this stone, they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. This is in the context of judgment that those who reject the chief cornerstone are not only neglecting the good graces he brings, but they will be brought under judgment by him because of it. They are are stumbling over the stone. They, They will fall and be broken. God's holy and righteous wrath, God's justice will be brought upon them and he will destroy them. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter here, he is reinforcing the reality that those those to whom the stone becomes a stone of stumbling are those who reject the message of the gospel. They are those who do not believe. But then, you see the question that might arise is, if God has, has done all this, if he prophesied the Messiah, and Jesus, you know, he accomplishes salvation on the cross, and, and, and believers are, are regenerated and are made a holy priesthood. If, if the text of Scripture here tells us all the, the, the wonderful works of God that God does to accomplish his redeeming work and saving a people, and yet at the very same time, Scripture says that there are builders who rejected the snow. And so there are, there are people to this very day who reject the message of the cross. And so the question that we have to answer, if we're going to believe every verse the Bible tells us, the question that we honestly have to deal with 
is if God has done all this, if God has, has displayed his glory, if he's done this mighty and wonderful work, and yet at the very same time, there are people who are rejecting him, has God failed? Have God's purpose been thwarted? The testimony of Scripture is that God has not failed. He is accomplishing his purpose. For what does verse 8 say? They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Now, now we don't like to think about this, and, and I already know that I'm making you uncomfortable by just reading this verse, uh, and, and I realize that this may cause some people to be upset, but, but humbly I tell you I'm a minister of Jesus Christ and of his word, and, and, and therefore my conscience is captive, and I have to not only believe but preach and proclaim everything that I read in my scripture, not just the parts that, that are appealing to you and will make me popular. I, I, I take the whole Bible. And the reality of biblical truth is that just as God has a purpose in saving some people, he also has a purpose in bringing judgment to others. Now, if we are going to believe what Peter says that about believers being elect exiles, and what he will say in verse 9, that we are a chosen race, and we also have to understand that there are people who are not of that group. There are people who are not elect, who are not chosen. They were destined to stumble. And that's, that's what Peter says in verse 8. I, I did not come up with that. That's what Peter says. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Now, we need to be very careful when we talk about this, because there, there's a right way to understand this, and there's a wrong way to understand this. Look closely at the language Peter uses. They stumble because they disobey the word. You see, people who reject the message of the cross are doing what they are choosing to do. They, they choose to reject the message of the cross. Why? Because they are in bondage to their sin, and, and they love their sin. And so when God judges them, he, he is judging them for doing what it is that they desired to do. The point Peter is making here is that although Jesus is rejected, do not think that this means God is failing. God, God, God does not fail. God does not, God does not try to do something and then not accomplish it and fail and then feel bad about himself or feel like he lost. No, God is always accomplishing his end and his purpose. Well, what does he say in, in Isaiah? He says, I am the Lord God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. And in the context of that passage, what God is doing is he is differentiating himself from the false gods and from every other being that you can think of or conceive of. For no one other than God has the ability or the capacity in truth to say that I am going to accomplish my end and my purpose, and my counsel shall stand. You see, this is the kingship of God being put on display here. For just as God has a purpose in electing some to salvation, he does have a purpose in delivering others over to their own desires. And God, he has a, the freedom and the capability to decide for himself a cornerstone in Zion, the foundation for salvation to some, and the cause of stumbling and of judgment to others. God can do this. And so all the stuff we read earlier about the universal priesthood of all believers, how all believers in Jesus Christ can draw near to God in intimate communion and fellowship with him, this is all to be magnified when we recognize the greatness, the majesty, and the power of God. We are talking about the majesty on high, the one who has stretch forth the measurements of this earth, who has been in the beginning, who always was, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has created all things. This God, who is sovereign, who has dominion over history and time and all of creation, in his mercy and in his love, he looks at sinners like, like me, like, like the sinner standing before you tonight, and he decides to 
according to his good pleasure, to so work in my heart to bring me to him. That, that, that is a wonderful thing. And, and so my prayer for you is that when, when you hear these things, that this, you realize you are talking about the true God, the one true God who is loving and is merciful and, and has decided to work personally in all of our lives. And, and, and as soon as we forget that, we, we really, really will just, just mess up. I, I had a chance a few weeks ago to sit down with a young man who actually told me that he read so many commentaries, he read so much theology that it was hurting him spiritually. And we need, we need to sober up to that. We need, we need to recognize that this, as I always admonish, is not just some intellectual, academic, you know, ethereal, floaty, spacey study. No, this is real life. This is the foundation of salvation. And so, in verse 9 we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, now speaking to believers here, there are four distinctive truths that Peter applies to them. First, they are a chosen race. Now, in a passage, and really a, the, the whole book of 1 Peter, which is just filled with Old Testament um, citations and allusions and quotations, uh, when, when Peter says that we are a chosen race, Peter calls to mind the nation of Israel. This people was God's chosen race. But, and, and of course, this is an ethnic group of people, but under the New Covenant, uh, not only are Jews going to be a part of the people of God, but now Gentiles have been grafted into this heavenly family. You, you see, God's chosen race, his peculiar people, his elect exiles in the world, are, are, are people, it, it consists of men and women of every tribe, tongue, nation, uh, people of every color, people of every culture, people of every class, but all under one creed. And in a, really, wow, and in a day and age like ours where there's so much racial conflict and tension, you know, this is the message of the Church of Jesus Christ that I want everyone to understand, that all who are in Christ, regardless of skin color or um, what, really whatever it is that you've gone through in your past, regardless of all of that, all are one in Christ. There's, there's not a black church over here. I, I, get, I really get so hurt when I hear people say, you know, the black church, the white church. That there, that, no, there is no black church over here and white church over here. There is one church. It's Christ's church. There is one flock and one shepherd. Now, the second thing Peter says in this verse is that we are a royal priesthood. Now, we covered this in great detail earlier, but the great blessing that we as Christians have is that we need no mediator between God and us. For Christ himself is our meteor. For Christ himself has died once and for all. We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, offering to him spiritual sacrifices pleasing in his sight. We, we, we have communion. We have fellowship with the majesty on high. We offer him our worship. We offer him our praise. And, and we can enter into his very presence when we worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the third thing Peter says is that we are a holy nation. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, Peter quotes, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The Christian people are a peculiar people, set apart by God, called out of darkness, called out of sin, and into the marvelous light of life. And the fourth thing we read in verse 9 is that we are a people for his own possession. Now, of course, God has, has dominion and power over all things, but there is a special sense in which believers in Christ belong to God as adopted sons and daughters. We read that the church is the bride of Christ. We, we belong to him. We are a chosen people, chosen by the Father, bought with the blood of Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit for God's own possession. We belong to him. We are his and he is the Almighty, the everlasting God who has created the heavens and the earth. 
And we are given the special privilege to enter into his presence as a royal priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable in his sight. We give him our hearts. We give him our bodies. We give him our our hands. We give him our minds, our affections, our talents, our possessions, all of our money. All that we have and all that we are, we offer up to Him who loves us and has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, not because we deserve it, but because He is so merciful and gracious. And all these things Peter lists off here in verse 9, that we are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for His own possession, are so that, or to the purpose that, we may, quote, Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, lest we become self-centered and reflecting over the blessings God has given us, God has not called us out of darkness into light just so that we would just, just sit there and just enjoy being in the light and, and, and you know, be off on an island somewhere and, and, and that kind of thing. No, he also does so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him, not the excellencies of ourselves, but the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because, and this applies to almost every page of scripture, but sometimes when we encounter these doctrines, like I was speaking about before with, you know, God chooses this people, but he doesn't choose this people, we, we have to recognize, we just got to stop being so man-centered in our thinking. We need to be God-centered as God is. Remember that God's chief end in all of his redemptive work is that he may be glorified. To proclaim his excellencies is to give glory to God, not only in what we say, but in all that we do and how we live our our lives. We we no longer live for ourselves, for we are a people of his own possession, because he has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. This This is the effectual calling where God, by his grace, sovereignly redeems every believer, bringing them into his great and wonderful salvation. Verse 10, we read, Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here in verse 10 exhorts us to reflect upon our blessings and what God has done for us. Now in this passage, he has gone to great lengths to to talk about those builders who refused the end cornerstone. He has talked about those who stumble because they disobey the word of God. And so before any of us should think to become proud, think that we are better, think that we are more deserving than non-believers, think that we are more deserving of God's grace than, than those who've rejected it. Uh, we, Peter reminds us that we were once just like them. We too, okay, we too were once children of wrath, divided and amongst the world. We were once not a people, We were not unified in Christ as we are now. We once had not received mercy. And and we deserve judgment. The the preacher standing here tonight deserved judgment just as much as every single other sinner on the planet. Uh, We, right, right now at this very moment, currently deserve God's judgment just as much as anyone else. Were it not that he sovereignly called us from darkness to light to redeem us and to give us mercy, all for his own glory. He is glorifying himself in this. He is not glorifying me. He's not glorifying Lakeview Baptist Church or New Harvest Ministries. This is about him, okay? I know that we love to think about ourselves and we always want to do that, but sometimes we just need to remember that we are not the hero in this story need to remember that this ultimately, why did God create this universe? To glorify Him. This is all about God. And there will just be, just, there's going to be a whole lot of heartache in your heart until you realize that. And so God 
sovereignly calls us from darkness to light to redeem us and to give us mercy all for his own glory. And had God not done that, if, if God did not sovereignly, by his grace, remove my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, it, if God did not decide to regenerate me, then, then my fate, then the fate of, of all of us would be just like those of whom it was said were destined to stumble. We, we, you know, when, when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, this not of yourselves, not of works, so that no man may boast, he meant that. He meant so that you may not boast. You do not get a part in this. You, there's not a portion of this where you can say, oh, God did 99% of the work, and now I did this little thing over here. No, 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 no. Don't, don't trust in yourself. Trust in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross to redeem you. Know that it is not of yourself, but it is of him. And so as we reflect on this truth, let us not only be humbled, but also to be encouraged. As we look towards our great and powerful God who has blessed us so greatly, you know, he decided to lay up a stone in Zion, a foundation of grace to some and wrath to others. Those who stumble, those who find it foolish, they hate it. They love their sin, and they do not turn from their wicked ways, following their own desires, following the passions of the flesh, the desires of their body, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. But by God's grace, to those whom he has made a chosen race, for his own possession, because this, this is about him, all right, for his own possession, effectually calling them from darkness, bringing them out of the bondage of sin, setting them free by the truth, he has made them a royal priesthood. So that every single person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ might draw near to him, to enter into fellowship with him, to abide in him, to offer spiritual sacrifices, pleasing in his sight, giving him praise, giving him worship, giving him glory. And that is a tremendously wonderful thing. And for those of you here tonight or listening online, if by God's providence this message has followed you, know that that was not an accident. Notice that God does nothing by accidents, but everything he does is purposeful and intentional. And so if he has sovereignly decided for you to hear my voice right now, to hear this message, please listen up, because this, this is of a divine appointment. If, if you yourself have not yet turned from sin to follow Christ, I pray that this very moment God would light a fire in your heart and help you see the foolishness of your sin, the foolishness of your ways, and to see His excellencies. This day, you are invited to come out of darkness, to become a member of the family of God, to have access to the almighty, everlasting Creator. Build your life upon His firm foundation. Enter into His marvelous grace. And now someone may say to me, well... Logan, what if I'm one of those who is destined to stumble? I say, do not twist scriptural truths into an excuse for sin. For the passage, or for the promise of Holy Scripture rings true, and is true this very day, as I, a sinner saved by grace, stand before you and tells you about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and the most excellent truth is that whoever repents of their sin... Whoever confesses their sin, whoever leaves their sin and follows Christ, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, has eternal life. And he will raise them up on the last day. Oh, poor sinner, do not hesitate, but come now at this very moment into the precious arms of the lovely Master Jesus Christ, who he promises, he says, he calls all who are weary and heavy laden, he says, come unto me and I will give you rest. This very day, this very hour, this very moment, do not hesitate. But come to him. But give him your heart. Give him your faith. Give him your soul. Give him your life. Leave your sin behind and follow him. Leave the darkness. Enter into the marvelous light. Build your life upon his firm foundation, for he is the stone that God laid up in Zion to be the foundation, to be, to be the end cornerstone of all of our salvation. And so I just pray that, that the Spirit of God would honor his word tonight, would honor his truth. And, and with all that being said, why don't you stand with me if you're able to, to close in prayer. Father God, humbly we come before you. We come before you, those of us who are sinners saved by grace, Dear God, we know that 
that the work that you've done in our lives has, has not been ourselves at it, but that it has been of you for your glory. And Father, give us a heart to rejoice in that. Help us to love the glory of God. Help us to love his power. Help us to love his sovereignty. Help us to love his attributes. Help us to love him. God, we, we beg of you to give us that heart to love you. Father, I, I just pray whoever hears this message, if, if they are a sinner not saved by grace, dear God, I just pray that the Spirit, that your Holy Spirit would, would open up their hearts, would draw them to your Son, would draw them to you, would draw them to the truth, would draw them to the message of the gospel. God, we have full confidence in your capability to do this. For I, I know myself that this is what you've done in me. I know that you have sovereignly and, and effectually called me and brought me to grace. And dear God, I just, I just, I know that you have the power to do that every day, every day still yet. And I just pray that you would, you would do this according to your good pleasure. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, who, who was able to come out here tonight. Such a, such a pleasure that I'm not just up here in an empty room, standing by myself, so I, I really do appreciate it. For those of you who listen online, uh, once again, that's, that's always appreciated, and, and be sure to come here next Sunday night. Thank you, and God bless.